point in the sermon this morning, we are going to be going through numerous scripture passages. I'll give you a heads up. And I'm just going to kind of read through them. I may give some commentary. That's going to probably be like maybe halfway or more towards the end of the sermon, but we'll get there. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans. We are going to be studying in depth chapters 9 through 11. Yeah, okay, all right. Romans, Romans 9. A woman and her husband were together in the hospital room. The, the wife was holding her husband's hand as, she was, as he was laying there. And the doctor came in and invited the wife to just step outside the hospital room for a moment. And as she left, she asked him, Doctor, is he going to make it? And the doctor responded, I tell you what, this is, this is really going to be tricky. There are certain things you're going to need to do. And if you do these faithfully, I think he's going to make it. But this is life or death. She said, well, things like what? He said, now these things you're going to need to do every day. He has bad circulation in his extremities. You're going to have to rub his feet like every day. Every day. He needs lots of protein. You need to cook him breakfast. Lots of, of meats and, and eggs, and you're just gonna, you're gonna need to really dote on him here. But, but cook him, you know, hot meals three times a day. And he's gonna need some exercise, and to begin with, it's gonna be difficult. You're gonna have to get him up out of bed and, and dress him, but he's gonna be able to come along, but you're gonna have to go at least, your goal is an hour every day walking with him, and this is gonna take time, but you're gonna have to do this. And then lastly, his spirits are down. And part of this healing process is you're going to have to just remind him how much you love him every day, constantly. Even when he's in a bad mood, you're going to have to look at him square in the eyes and say, sweetie, I love you. And she says, I got to do this every day. He said, yes, but this is life or death. This is truly important. She walks in. She grabs her husband's hand as he looks up to her and he asks, well, sweetheart, what did the doctor say? She looks at him with tears in her eyes and says, he says you're going to die. <laughs> Our perspective, being able to see the big picture, impacts our attitudes and our actions either positively or, in this situation, negatively. But we need to have a big picture. All of us, we need to have a big picture. Remember the story I told last week with regard to the, the, the guy who lived in Hawaii and his favorite team. And when they would play in uh, Monday afternoon, he would listen to the radio. And no matter when, well, rather that evening when he would actually watch it, even though he knew his team was going to win when they fumbled or threw interceptions, it was no big deal because he knew that they were going to win the game. It's amazing how knowing something about the future, knowing something of how something is going to turn out helps us. Now, it can help us negatively, but today I want us to talk about the big picture of God's kingdom that I believe needs to impact our attitudes and our actions very, very positively. I want to ask you this. No, I'm not going to call on you. Now, don't raise your hand, but I want to ask you, what one picture about the future, if God were to show it to you, you would say, wow, now that would change the way I live. 
you understand what I'm asking of you? What one picture, maybe write it down on the back of the bulletin where it says sermon notes, but what one picture, what one snapshot of your future would you like to see from God that you would say, yeah, if I saw this, that would forever change my life? Such as, who am I going to marry? <laughs> Such as, is this business going to succeed? How about my children? How about my boss? Is, is this guy just going to continue to nag me like forever and always? God, really? Because if so, I'm not so sure I want to keep working here. Yeah, that will definitely change my attitude and my actions. Or maybe we're going to get a new boss, and I need to hang around, and he's going to be great, and I'll get promotions. What one picture could God show you that would change the way you live? For example, let's, let's say that you, uh, God gives you a picture of your business. What if he gave you, let's assume you're starting a business, and let's say he were to show you that this business would just take off like gangbusters, and would actually go international within two years. And it would just continue to grow and be prosperous, and you'd be able to sow into the kingdom, and all of those needs you are scraping by God is going to abundantly bless. How motivated would you be to work that business? Or, opposite scenario, God were to show you a picture of the business, and he were to show you all the struggle, the business would barely take off the ground. You wouldn't make a lot of money. God would come through, but it would be like you're making it by the skin of your teeth. How motivated would you be at that moment to work absolutely hard? As hard as you could, diligently. The Bible talks quite a bit, by the way, about diligence. You see, the picture that we receive, the picture that we see and understand about future things impacts us. And you're probably wondering, Pastor Mike, where are you going with this? Well, here's where I'm going with this. There is a picture that has been growing since I would say about 1900, and it has come into the church, and it is a very negative view about how this world is going to turn out. It's called dispensational premillennialism. Now, some of you may fall into that theological persuasion, and though there are points in which I may disagree, the truth is we are about the gospel, right? But I want to focus on just one thing, and that is from this viewpoint, we, uh, such as the um, Schofield's Bible that was put out around that time, very heavenly dispensational, holding this view, their perspective is, as time goes on, the world will get worse and worse and worse. Darkness will pervade throughout the earth. And then finally, when it reaches bottom, Christ will come back victoriously. Now, the reason why I struggle with this view, apart from the fact that I don't see it in Scripture, though you get glimpses of something maybe like that in Revelation, which is highly symbolic anyway, it can taint the way we live this life. Can I just say that up until the 1900s, the view of the general view of the church was that the gospel would triumph, that the gospel would go throughout the earth, and that things wouldn't get darker and darker and darker, but actually brighter and brighter and brighter. 
And I'm not just talking about those who held to a post-millennial view, if you even understand what that means. I'm talking about those who interpreted uh, much of the end times either literally or symbolically. It didn't matter. But a view that's become very popularized in our day through books and movies such as the Left Behind series, it, it's, it's doom and gloom. And, and you know the gospel's still going to go out, but it's a defeated gospel. It's a defeated kingdom, honestly. And it gets worse and worse. And then Jesus has to come back to save the day. I'm going to suggest to you as we go through Romans 9 and 11... Yes, we're really going to cover three chapters, believe it or not. Not in detail. I was joking in the beginning. But we are going to come to chapter 11. We're going to camp out there a little bit. And then we're going to show these scripture passages. Because it is my belief, strong belief, that the scriptures are very positive. That the gospel is a triumphant gospel. That the kingdom of God will actually spread throughout the earth. And when we understand the extent and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's not just going to hit like a brick wall. And Satan is going to say, yay for me. I have I have become victorious over the lamb and his followers. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I believe the gospel is very triumphant and that the kingdom of God will march forward. And I'm going to tell you this, and we're going to try and spend some time in the end. How is this going to actually affect your attitude and your actions? Because it will. I have heard some theologians say this, and these were people who were a part of the first and second great awakenings in America. That your view of this issue will dictate how you live your life. It is that significant. So this isn't just me talking. But something happened in America and and has spread throughout the world, I suppose, the degree to which I'm not real certain on, but I know in America, when you watch the Left Behind series, you just see how the the beast, the man of lawlessness, comes in and, and just everyone's going to hell. Is that really true? Now, I am not going to get into prophetic charts. I'm not going to be displaying prophetic charts up here on the overhead. Um, If you want to see my prophetic chart, it's really simple. Really simple. The gospel spreads throughout the earth and Jesus comes back. He comes back and we are resurrected and the judgment and then God destroys the world and ushers in the new kingdom here on earth. New heavens, new earth. That's heaven. Really simple. As we go, th- as we have been going through the 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 the, the chapter uh, Romans chapter eight, we've been seeing it from God's perspective. Remember the two lenses, the lens Acts two twenty three. We looked at what about the cross? It happened by God's set purpose and His foreknowledge, knowing evil men in their wickedness would rise up and put Jesus to death. The cross was absolutely certain, planned before the beginning of the ages, revealed to us. It happened. The devil couldn't stop it. What I'm going to share with you this morning is in the same vein of God's set purpose, but as we get to chapter 11, we're going to be looking at it Paul helps us look at it through both lenses of God's set purpose and yet man's need to respond to God's offer of salvation that we call faith. 
But as we go as from chapter 828 to the end of the chapter, there is no mention of faith. It is very simply, by his foreknowledge, according to his foreknowledge, we were predestined, and out of that he called, and from his calling he justified and he glorified. And we saw that this concept of glorification was not just something in heaven, it, it's happening now. We are reflecting his glory more and more and more. A lot of questions unanswered because it was just through that one lens of God's set purpose. We move now into chapter 9, and we begin to see Paul. He's coming back to this issue of his people. So are you there in Romans 9, verse 1? He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. You you get this feeling maybe he's pretty confident in what he's about to say. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now here it is, verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, people of Israel. And he comes back to this theme of Israel. And it's because, if you haven't noticed, from the very beginning... He has told us that we are separated from God by our sin and we are in great need of a righteousness that is not our own, but is actually something that God imputes or imparts to us. And it is in that righteousness that I must stand and not my own. I can't just follow the law and say, look, God, see what good, great job I've done. And God will say, thank you, but those are nothing but filthy rags. We can't stand in our righteousness. This is justification by faith. Declaration, Mike Curtis, you are righteous because of my son. And so from there, we, we begin to see the fall of man, the inability of the law to justify. And this is what, this is what causes Paul's heart to ache. Because his fellow Jews were so convinced in their legalism that by following the law, if they just did it right, they would stand righteous before God. And he, yeah, you're a part of my kingdom. And Paul was trying to say, no, 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 no. You see, that's why Jesus had to come, the ultimate sacrifice, to wash away your sins, to, for you to stand in his righteousness. Not your own. You, you can't follow the law. And so his heart goes out to them because their focus was the law and he was calling them to the cross. And they rejected what he had to say. And, and as he walks them through this, he now comes back to this. And this is in part the theme of the next three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. He gets into something that I touched on two weeks ago. I'm not going to develop today, though maybe some of you have a lot of questions on, and it's the issue of election. And I'm only going to say this about election because I spoke to it two weeks ago. Uh, you can go on our theology class. There's, I think there's two classes that deal with it. I'm just going to say this. Paul's goal here is in essence saying this. In the Old Covenant, there were two levels of election. There was national election which has nothing to do with choosing a president, by the way. There was God choosing a people, a nation for himself. But not all of them were saved. Though they were circumcised according to the covenant, many of them, their hearts were not circumcised. And so they were still outside of this relationship with God. But his blessings were upon them. There were certain requirements that he asked of them. 
but they were always saved by faith in the Old Covenant as well as the New. And so there is this concept of you are my people. I have chosen you, Israel. But as he says here in the next verse, but not all of Israel was Israel. In other words, not everyone who was born a Jew was truly my son, my daughter. Not all of Israel was truly Israel. Not every Jew that's circumcised, he says this in chapter 2, not every Jew that's circumcised is a true Jew. A true Jew is one who's circumcised in their heart. Not all Israel is Israel. In other words, not everyone who is elect, of the elect nationally was of the elect individually. And so in the Old Covenant, we have two perspectives or two levels of election. In the New Covenant, there is no national election. It is only individual, and that is his point here. It is not, and, and Scripture never ever says in the New Testament that Israel are the people of God. It, it doesn't say that. Now, if you disagree with me, I would invite you, please show me a passage. Unless it's a prophecy referring to the people of God in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, they were called the people of God, just not in the New. Who, who is this holy nation, royal priesthood, the, the the special people of God, it is the church. It is, as we're going to see at the end of 9, the remnant, which was Jewish. And by the way, the early church for the first decade to 15 years was strictly Jewish. And then the gospel began to permeate into the nations and the Gentiles were added into the church through faith in Jesus Christ, just like any Jew. But not all Israel was Israel. And as we hit verse 30, we begin to see a shift now in Paul's perspective. He ends it, that section of 9, talking about the Gentiles and then the Israel, and then Israel, such as in verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, only those who are individually elect. Now, again, you're going to probably have questions about this. I understand. But only the remnant will be saved. And so he goes on with verse 30. What then shall we say? And here's his conclusion that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have actually obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Jews in the Old Testament, as well as the New, regardless, always saved by faith. Always. Because of the addition of the law, that, that didn't matter. Always saved by faith. Abraham himself believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, Scripture says. Now we see this shift, and it is a shift now that focuses almost strictly on the other, through the other lens, the lens of man's response to this great grace of God, faith. And he does this through the rest of the chapter. He does this now throughout chapter 10. And he, he asks this question, even in, in chapter 10, brothers, verse 1, my heart's desire and the prayer to my 
excuse me, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He's coming back to this theme. What about Israel? What about Israel? And he says, for I testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge since they do not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. You see, they missed it. The long-promised Messiah had come to die for their sins and that by faith in him, then they would find this righteousness, not of themselves, but of God. Then. But they missed that they were so caught up in law, 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 following the law. And he declares in verse 12, he says, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Those who call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. By the way, that is a quote from Joel chapter 2. The Lord here, if you were to follow the context is clearly Jesus. Those who call in the name of Jesus will be saved. Incidentally, when you go back to Joel chapter 2, guess what name is found there? Those who call on the Lord. It is not Adonai. It is actually Yahweh. And Paul is making it clear here. Those who call on Yahweh, Jesus, Jesus is Yahweh. They will be saved. And so as he continues through this, the focus is faith, faith. Faith. How are they going to have faith unless someone goes and preaches to them? This is the expansion of the gospel. Unless we go, church, no one can believe because they must hear the truth. I don't care how persuasive you are in your ability to communicate. Not only do you need to communicate the truth of the gospel, but the spirit of God must be active. And I'm going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. And as we go through chapter 10, it is faith, 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 faith. And then in chapter 11, are you there with me? Verse 1. He now switches his perspective. I did say I was going to focus on this chapter a little bit more. Now he looks through both lenses. Throughout this chapter, he talks about both election and faith. And he begins it with with this. I ask then, did God reject his people? Only the remnant of Israel is going to be saved. Did God just reject them completely? And has he forgotten about them? Has he kind of left them, kicked them to the curb, so to speak? Is that what God is doing? Did God just get fed up with them and just say, enough with you, I am moving on? Did God reject the Jews? And his answer is, by no means. Now follow me, because we go here to verse 5, and it says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And it is this remnant of the Jews that have truly believed in Jesus. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were grace, would no longer be grace. Verse 7, what then? What Israel sought so earnestly It did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened. May I suggest hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So here we have now this picture that Paul is painting. It's not that God has rejected all of them 
just many of them, even most of them. And as we read through the rest of this chapter, he talks about this olive tree. And that the Jews that rejected Jesus at the cross, they were completely cut off. Completely cut off. No more of the blessings of God. No more of him calling them my people, my special treasured possession. And now you have Gentiles being grafted in. So where are we going with all of this? Mike, it, it sounds nice and theological and yeah, but so what? Follow me here. In verse 11, again I ask, did they, referring to the Jews, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Is there no hope for them? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Now follow his logic here. But if their transgression means riches for the world, in other words, if they rejected Jesus and so God extended this salvation um, in a very, um, how can I say, aggressive fashion through evangelism to the Gentiles, and therefore many of the Gentiles are being added. In other words, because Israel rejected the gospel, now there is a huge number of Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God. And their loss means riches for the Gentiles. And here's his question. How much greater riches will their fullness bring? That is the fullness of the Jews. What is the fullness of the Jews? Now, he uses this very same Greek word that we're going to look at in just a moment later in the chapter. It is the fullness of the Jews. So what he's saying is this, and this is important. If Israel rejected Christ and only the remnant believed, and because of that, many Gentiles are coming in, what would happen if the Jews reached their fullness? And I'm going to suggest to you right now, that is the full number of Jews. We're going to see that in just a moment. What if, like, I don't know, maybe all the Jews came to Christ one day? What if that happened? He's saying, can you only imagine what would happen with the Gentiles? Oh, my goodness. Whoa, you get his point. If the rejection of the gospel by the Jews meant so much salvation for so many Gentiles, can you only imagine what's going to happen to the Gentiles when so many Jews come to Christ? It's going to be... Incredible. Now, we know that this is his point because as we go, turn with me now, verse 25. And he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. Mystery. So that you may not be conceited as if, hey, you know, Jews had it one time, but now Gentiles, we're God's thing now. Sorry, Jews, but it's all about us now. Mm -mm. so that you may not be conceited. Here it is. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number, that is the fullness of the Gentiles, has come in. 
Now, whatever the fullness of the Gentiles means here, it means the same thing for the fullness of the Jews. Now, look at this next verse. And so, all Israel shall be saved. Now, let's put this together. All, by the way, can mean three different things. I'm not sure if you are aware of that. All can mean every single thing or person. And, and that's generally how we understand it. All can also mean all kinds. Such as in Acts chapter 2, when he's quoting from Joel, and he says that in the last days, the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon a few people. Is that how your version reads it? Well, mine happens to say all flesh. Does that mean everyone's going to get saved? No. It means all kinds of people, all kinds of flesh. Men servants and maid servants, old men and young men, men and women, adults, children. This is what he means, all kinds. And, and we see that actually many times in the New Testament. All can actually mean all kinds. But all can also mean maybe not every single one, but this huge number. And we see that actually in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi come following the star. Do you remember? We are seeking the his star so that we can worship him the messiah's star so that we can worship him and then it says in the very next verse it says and herod was troubled and all jerusalem with him now does that mean even the two-year-old infants were troubled does that mean that people who lived on the outskirts that every single person let's say there's a hundred thousand people in jerusalem that every single one of them was disturbed with him i seriously doubt it but anyone observing the ruckus in Jerusalem could, even though it was, let's say, the majority, they would say, well, all Jerusalem is disturbed by this. But my point is simply this. When it says all Israel, we know it cannot mean all kinds because Israel is a kind. Israel is a nation. They're a people. They have their own distinguishing factors. That makes no sense. All kinds of Israel. Okay, it, it, they're Jews. They're already a kind. So it, it can't mean all kinds. It must mean one of two other things. Either every single Jew will be saved or that the vast majority is huge number, this huge percentage. I, I, honestly, I do not know which one it is, but I do know this. It is not going to be a handful. We're already seeing Jews coming to Christ by the thousands. Now, can I just let you know right up front, I have no clue when Jesus is coming back. He may come back in my generation or the next generation or five generations or 20 generations from now. The scriptures do not give us a clue. I know others could put their prophecy charts up here and see all the signs and see how there's more wars and famines and earthquakes and, and all of this. And I would say, yeah, there are, but that doesn't mean Jesus is coming now. This has been going on for ages and ages. He, he could, though. But here's where we're going with this, church. Listen to me now. Here's what Paul is getting at. Here is the mystery that the Jews and the Gentiles, this is what's going to happen. As the number of the Jews increases, the riches of the Gentiles will increase as well. This is the fullness of the, Gen the Jews. What is the fullness of the, Gen of the Jews? All Israel will be saved. What? That many? That Really? Yes. Can you imagine what's going to happen when all Jews are saved? What do you think about the Gentiles? Do you, you get this feeling, whoa, back the truth trolley up here, Paul. Are you actually trying to tell me that, number one, all Jews, 
whatever that might mean, are going to be saved. But that is going to thoroughly impact the Gentile community in such a way that my mind is starting to get blown right now thinking about it. The extent of the gospel, do you really believe that the extent of the gospel is going to be that phenomenal? Turn with me now. Last chapter in the book of Romans. Last chapter, he, he just touches on this theme and he, he talks about the mystery that's been hidden for ages past. Follow with me in verse 25. Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel, in the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. Now, a mystery is not like a secret that nobody knows about, that you have to solve. A mystery, a mysterion in the Greek, simply means something that people didn't really quite understand. And now, voila, they do. That is, things like Isaiah 53, well, who is this person who is going to become a sacrifice for his people in which the Lord is going to lay all our sins upon him. This was the question of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. And Philip said, oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Let me tell you about Jesus. And, and it was like a mystery. It was a veil over their eyes and they couldn't quite understand it. And then suddenly the cross, the resurrection, I got it. The mystery revealed, now proclaimed through the prophets and apostles in our day. And everybody's starting to find out about this. And this, this is growing. It's growing. And this is the mystery. The gospel, Jesus Christ, who he is, what he accomplished for my salvation. But now, this mystery, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey. Is Paul kind of saying what Peter said in 2 Peter 3.9 where he says, but God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. Is Peter trying to say that everyone is going to get saved? Well, we know he's not. He actually talks about it in that very chapter that he's not, and just actually the verse or two before it, God's going to destroy ungodly men. So not, not everyone is going to get saved. Of course not. Many, many will be destroyed. But this is, this is the heart of God. God longs for the lost to repent and to come to know him and be saved, but he knows that many, many will not. So is this Paul in Romans 16, 26, just kind of expressing this heart of God? Yeah, I really would like to see all nations believe and obey, even though I know they're not. Is it God's wishful thinking here? That's a very valid question. Because as I'm reading it, chapter 11, now chapter 16, it truly seems as if this is God's set purpose. This is what God is actually going to do, that all nations truly will. This isn't wishful thinking. This is the plan of God and the gospel's extent throughout the world, that all nations will believe and obey. Now, follow with me. We're going to look at one more verse, 
look at it a little bit, and then we're going to look at these verses on the overhead. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 10. Don't let that scare you, Revelation, okay? I'm not going to look at something that's highly symbolic and mystical, and you're going to wonder, what on earth does that mean? You are truly not going to say that when we look at this, okay? And in, in Revelation chapter 10, verse 7, Actually, you can see the, the line, the, the, the sentence just before verse 7, and he says, there will be no more delay. Verse 7, but, in contrast to this delay, hang on, here we go, no more delay, but, in the days when the seventh trumpet is about to, excuse me, in the days in which the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. First of all, the seventh trumpet actually occurs in chapter 11, right there in verse 15. And then we get this picture of heaven. And follow me in verse 17 where he says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken up your great power and have begun to reign. Do you see anything missing in that verse? Look at it hard. Do you see anything missing in that verse? Don't we normally hear this phrase, who was, who is, and who is to come? You actually see that several times in Revelation. But when we come to this verse, who is to come is gone. And as you read further, you discover that it's because Jesus has already come back. He has come. The blowing of the seventh trumpet is the coming of Jesus Christ, the end of this age. Jesus comes, done. And, and what does it say this, say here in chapter 10, verse 7? We're going back there. I hope I'm not moving too quickly through this. I know we, it is quick, but he says, but in the days when the seventh trumpet is about to, seventh angel is about to sound, his trumpet. In other words, in the days just prior to when Jesus comes back, he says this, the mystery of God will be accomplished. That word accomplished means finished. Actually, you see that if you have an NASB, finished, completed. It will triumph. The purpose of the gospel is indeed to win all nations. We're going to see that in a moment. We saw here in, in, in Romans 16, verse 26, so that the mystery of God is being proclaimed, so that, what's the goal here? So that, what's the goal? For all nations to believe and obey. And he's saying here, the mystery of God, the gospel, and the extent of that gospel it will be accomplished. The goal will be accomplished. The mystery of God will be accomplished. And then he goes on to say this, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And so what I want us to do is ask this question, okay, it seems as he is just telling us here, Paul, uh, excuse me, the, uh, John is saying, I'm not throwing a fast one on you here about the, this mystery of God being accomplished that all nations might believe and obey, that not only would the Gentiles, Ephesians 3, 6, not only would they be partakers of the covenants of promises, Israel, 
but that all nations would believe and obey. This is the fulfillment, this is the goal of the mystery of God. He says, this isn't new. It's been announced through his prophets. And I, I could list 20 verses up here, or plus, just starting, 20 verses. I'm only going to show a handful, or maybe a few more than a handful. Now, I actually put tabs in my Bible because I need to go through these quickly because I've got only about 15 minutes and I want to share something that God has really laid on my heart. And we're going to start now, if we could put them up with Psalm 2. This is what's called a Messianic Psalm. In other words, even though it was given to David... It is fulfilled in the Messiah. And I don't know of any commentators that would disagree with that. So I'm not, I'm not pulling something out of my left pocket. This is the Messianic Psalm. This, in essence, was given to David, but it is fulfilled in the Messiah. Verse 8, ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Go on over now to Daniel chapter 2, or follow up here, Daniel chapter 2. This is the chapter of the image of gold, excuse me, the image in which the head, there was the head of gold, the chest of bronze, or, or silver, the, the body of bronze, etc., etc. And Nebuchadnezzar's warning, what on earth does this mean? And God gives Daniel the interpretation of the dream. And he says in verse 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces all at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Church, say that phrase with me. The whole earth. Verse 44. In the times of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom, this is the interpretation of the rock, will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. That kingdom that will fill the whole earth, fill the whole earth. Feel the gravity of that phrase. Fill the whole earth. Zechariah chapter 9. Many of you are familiar on Palm Sunday. We read this, uh, we read verse 9 that talks about, see your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and that portion is not up there. But what is up here is I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. I'm not going to get into what that more than likely means. I, I want us to look at this next section because this verse follows on the heel of prophetically being fulfilled when Jesus marched into Jerusalem and was crucified. Then it says, he will proclaim peace. This man riding on a donkey, this king, Jesus himself, will proclaim peace in the nations. His rule will extend, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river, which we refer to the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. What? I mean, that sounds a little pervasive to me, if you ask. In the next one, Psalm 72, 
What is this about you know, all nations and ends of the earth type of stuff? In verse 7, in, these, in his days, this is another messianic psalm. In his days, the righteous will flourish. Prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. Verse 8, he will rule from sea to sea. Now, church, can I ask you, in our day, does Jesus rule from sea to sea? I would have to say that in some ways he does, but not necessarily as the king of his people. Jesus is the king of the earth. But his subjects right now, the lost, are in rebellion. We don't get that picture from this. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow before him. Hello. And his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. And the kings of Sheba and Seba will present present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. What is this about all nations? We're starting to see this. There's many other verses in Scripture that I'm not going to get into that continually talks about all nations, all nations, all nations will serve him. All nations will bow down. All nations will look to him. All nations, all nations. And you're wondering, well, I mean, really, surely he's just exaggerating here. I mean, really, like all nations like Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan that are thoroughly, I mean, percentage of Muslims are, what, 95 plus? Even those nations will bow down? Surely you must mean at the judgment they will bow down, but there is no inclination of this anywhere. Some would say, well, maybe at some future age, and we're going to get into that just a little bit, but I would say, no, it is not. It is this age in which God will do this. It is in this age in which the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of God, will be accomplished. And we're reading it right here. He said, this is what I proclaimed to my servants, the prophets. Here it is. Now, Let's look at one more, or or not just one more, another one. And in Psalm 22, 27 to 29, it says this, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. What? Really? And all families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust, that is mortals, will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. It seems as if God is doing something phenomenal here. Isaiah 11.9. Before I read Isaiah 11.9, Isaiah 11.10 says, in that day. So whatever happens in verse 9, that God is saying what happens in verse 10, excuse me, yes, verse 10 happens at the same time. In that day, That is, in the day of verse 9, verse 10 will take place. Do do you see what I'm saying here? So what we're about to read in verse 9 happens at the same time verse 10 does. Verse 10 talks about nations rallying to the son of Jesse, the branch of David. And in Romans 15, Paul actually quotes this verse to suggest that in our day, Gentiles nations will come to Christ. And you can look that up and see where it's quoted, Romans 15. But his purpose is to use this verse to prove that the Gentiles will come to Christ. So in the day that the Gentiles will come to Christ, is that sometime in heaven? No, that is here while the gospel is being proclaimed. So verse 9 happens 
in this age. What does it say? It says, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can I ask you, to what degree do the waters cover the sea or the sea basins? It's completely filled. Completely filled. Water is everywhere. In the same way, knowledge of the Lord will pervade throughout this earth. And I would suggest to you that this is not just some head knowledge. It is a knowledge that transforms lives. Now, can I ask you, at least at this point, do you see that the gospel is going to kind of peter out, that the persecution of church is going to be so extensive that the gospel will be pushed to the corners of the earth and not heard by the vast majority of the world? That somehow the days are going to grow darker and darker and darker until finally Jesus, come rescue us. Now, I'm not going to say that there's no persecution. Actually, there is more persecution in our day today than at any other time in all of human history. That's the truth. I would also suggest that the reason for that is because we have so many people now popular. What, seven billion on planet Earth? But nevertheless, more persecution today, but that is not in any way going to hinder the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is God's set purpose that this happens. The devil, no matter how masterful he is in his strategies and plans, cannot keep the gospel from reaching the nations so that all nations will believe and obey. This is where history, by God's set purpose, is marching forward, too. And so, in, in chapter 11, excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, this is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. Now, what I'm about to read happens when? In the last days. Can I suggest to you, this phrase is never used to refer to the next age. Some last days that happen in heaven or some, some other time. In the last days refers to the end of this age. And the end of this age happens when Christ comes back. So in the last days, before Jesus comes back, this that I'm about to read to you will happen. And I'm going to suggest to you, we know this because that's what he means by in the last days. He says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. And, and I, I apologize, we, we could have looked at chapter 11 much more extensively. It talks about the Lord's temple, and I'm just going to suggest to you that the Lord's temple is not in any way a physical building, but rather it is, as we see throughout the New Testament, Christ's church, the people of God. They are the mountain of God. They are Mount Zion. And he goes on and he says it will be established and as chief among the mountains, it will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. My peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. That is the lost. Those who are in the nations wondering what is going on here. Something phenomenal is happening. And they're going to start saying among themselves, come, let us go up to the mountain. Let's go to the church of the, of the Lord, to the house of God, of, of, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. 
see people hungering for truth, for the gospel, so that they may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, that is his church. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Now, if you're wondering, I'm truly not trying to pull any rabbits out of a hat here. If you're wondering if I am a post-millennialist, whatever that might mean. Some of you are saying, whatever, post-millennialist, okay. Now, I'm, I'm personally a pan mill. It's all going to pan out in the end, Mike. That's, that's fine. Uh, but a, a, I'm not a post-millennialist. I, I, I do believe, though, in the triumph of the gospel. And, and we're seeing something that, as I'm saying, up until 1900, the vast majority of Christianity welcomed, embraced, believed. Just how pervasive it was was some debate, but it was a triumphant gospel. It was a, it was a kingdom of God that marched forward and Satan, how dare you think that you're even gonna in some way snuff out its light. That is not the prevailing view in America today, in his church. It is negative. And I'm suggesting to you, whatever you believe that God is gonna do in the future will affect your attitude and your actions. Okay, so now we come to one more verse. And you're familiar with this one. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he goes on to say, go and make disciples. Therefore, don't want to forget that one. Because Jesus has all authority. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And we read that verse, and, and it kind of hits us this way, honestly. This is how I interpreted it, like, almost all my life, until I, I went back to the original Greek, and it's totally different. And that is, we, we, we many times understand this, okay, God wants us to go into the nations and try and win some of those people. So what is the focus? It is some of the people in all of these nations. But that's not the way the Greek reads. The focus in the Greek is not the individual. It actually says, going, make all nations disciples. The focus is not the individual, but it's nations. Church, when you want to see worldwide evangelization, understand, you gotta, the, the individual has to come to Christ, okay? It's not because the president of a nation says, I'm a Christian and therefore we're all saved. Um, that is not what this is talking about. But our goal needs to be much bigger. Our goal is not, I just want to win a handful from this nation to Christ. I, there's a handful in Iran and a handful in Iraq and a handful in Afghanistan who are Christians and they're being persecuted and many of them being beheaded and tortured and killed. This is martyrdom. But the picture that we see here, our goal is bigger than this. Go and make Iran a disciple of Jesus Christ. Go and make Afghanistan disciples of Jesus Christ. It is nations. It's as if God has this thing for nations, not just individuals that make up the nations, but God's goal is bigger than ours. It's nations that all nations might believe and obey. So even in, in here, in the most basic charge to evangelize, God's vision is so much bigger than ours. Mike, can you trust me for nations? Not just some, 
I mean, you have to have some before we have a, a, a nation. And I'm not suggesting that everyone in the nation is, is getting saved. I don't see that in Scripture as we balance it out. Next week we're going to look into this a little bit deeper, but I believe God wants us to see something much bigger than most people in Jesus' church are seeing today. And that is that God's heart is for nations. Nations, church. Nations. Excuse me, I'm trying to find my way here. Here we go. All of this, and, and again, there's many more verses we could look at, but all of this will be accomplished prior to Christ's return. As Peter asks with respect to Christ's return in 2 Peter 3 and the ensuing destruction of the world at that time, he says, what kind of people ought we to be? We ought to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Did you catch that last part? And speed, it's coming. Hmm. Where's all of this going? Is it just for us as Jesus' church to believe in Jesus and survive and just make it to the end, hang on? Or does God's set purpose have something much bigger that he is calling us to? I do believe that all nations will believe and obey. I pray it's in my generation. It may not be. I pray that God will do it and I will be able to see it with my own eyes. But I may not. I I may have to accept the role that Moses did in which he only had a chance to look at the promised land. In which case, I'm I'm a baton passer. My goal, and many of yours, is to be able to pass, pass, effectively pass on that baton to the next generation because they may be the ones that get to see all nations streaming into God's immense church as it's just exploding. Now, I do believe that there is a man of lawlessness when there's a rebellion who will appear. I'm not getting into that. But truthfully, We place so much emphasis on that in our day, it colors everything that we see about in the last days. And we miss this phenomenal point, the set purpose of God, that history is marching forward to embrace the gospel impacting entire nations. And we settle for maybe, maybe we'll just pray in a few. My time is out, and I probably have another 10 to 15 minutes, and I'm going to probably save that for next week because of the topic that we're going to look at next week. And it, w- it will work. But I want to leave you with a thought. I'm not going to be able to get into the application like I wanted to. I'm going to do that next week. But I want to leave you with this. If what I'm suggesting to you, that the majority of the church has believed for 19 years and I'm going to suggest to you has kind of lost its way in the last century or so. If this is true, and God's set purpose truly is that the gospel invade entire nations and awaken them, 
so that when you look at Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, that I've been kind of looking at this this morning, that we're no longer Muslim nations, but no, they're Christian nations. They're, they're nations. You look at it and say, wow, that, that nation is following God. Now, I'm not saying all of them, but that, that nation is following God. This is amazing. If this is true, how is that going to impact the way you live? Now, I tell you what, it's going to impact your attitude. We know that. It's going to, you're going to be like, whoa, God, if this happens in my day, I mean, this is awesome. But then you ask, so, so what do I do? Now, I want to focus on this one thing. I could tell you, well, you just need to evangelize more. You just need to pray, oh, God, kick me in the backside and wake me up, and I need to be able to smell the coffee and get out there and start evangelizing. And, and I, hope, I hope we do that, but we're missing something that's absolutely vital here. This is God's set purpose. We can, in some way, I don't understand, by following God and living holy, obedient lives, in some way speed the coming of Christ. But I'm going to tell you this. When you were saved, was it because someone came to you with such persuasive words that you said, oh my goodness, that sounds so right, I think I'm going to follow Jesus. No, actually, if you were like me, when I heard the truth, even though I've been in church like all my life, when I was 14, I heard it again, and I was immediately resistant. I'm thinking of, oh, my brother, you know, something happened in his life that is just, from my perspective, really weird. I mean, it's all about Jesus this and Jesus that. You know, that's fine for you, Dan, but that's not for me. I mean, it's Friday. Give me a break. Sunday, okay? We talk about it Sunday, but not Friday. There was an immediate resistance in my heart. But you know what happened? Here's what happened. My brother didn't coax me into the kingdom. He didn't say, well, Mike, you just need to turn or burn. Well, Mike, you know, if you just, if you just, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that and kind of put me on a guilt trip. He just said, here's some scripture passages, and what are you going to do? And it was at that moment that the Spirit of God so fell on me and opened my eyes. God, what am I going to do? The resistance that I felt, it was gone. I can't explain that. God's grace broke into my life. My eyes were open. I saw truth. I believed in Jesus, and he began to transform my life. And I'm going to venture to say that this is how God works. God's grace leads us to this point. Jesus put it this way. The Father, only, I'm sorry, whoever the Father draws comes to. No man comes to me except the Father is drawing him. Now, don't take that too far. I'm, I'm not like this staunch Calvinist and et cetera, et cetera. But even Arminians understand this. God's grace, the conviction of the Spirit. God impacting us, turning our attention, turning our hearts to seek him and actually want him. This is grace. So do you want to be a part of this phenomenal worldwide global awakening and be on the side of grace and do this? Pray. 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 
do you realize that God has instituted this concept of prayer even though he has set purposes? Why would he do that? Why would he want you and I to partner with him when it's set? It's because he wants to see faith rise up in his people. He wants to see people on their knees crying out to God. We cannot do this. I am not that good of a speaker. I cannot convince or coax anyone into the kingdom. God, you must come in. You are the one who will save the day. You are the one who will invade this person's life. I can't do it. I'll mess it up. I'm really good at that, by the way. I can't do it. So God, how is this going to happen? It must be you. God, would you please, would you please rescue my daughter? She has lost her way. I can't do it. I open my mouth and she walks away. God, you rescue her heart. I can't do it. I am weak. I need you, God. Rescue her. There have been points in my children's life in which I wondered, God, are they coming to this place in which they are going to turn from me? And I feared. And my wife and I, we prayed. We fasted. We said, we will not give up on this. And we prayed and we prayed. And there was nothing that we could say that could turn their hearts. But God from heaven heard our prayer. And he did something that we could not do. And I want to just leave this with you, church. You want to be a part of this incredible move of what God is going to do. And I pray that it will be in our generation. Then let us be a praying people. This is about God intervening on our behalf to wake up this world to the truth of who Jesus is and what he did for them and to break their heart. I want my heart, as we sing that song, I want my heart to break for what breaks his heart. And this, the loss, breaks his heart, church. And as we pray, our God is up there in heaven. And I was just thinking, I know I'm going over time, I was just, I was thinking about this. And how the saints in heaven would, would be. And, and I believe that they participate in whatever's going. They're not just blinded to everything that's going on. And then when we pray, I, I just, I'm not saying that this happens. It, 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 I'll just say it. It's as if God looked down and he saw Meredith Curtis praying. And then he saw Leanne joining and Nicole and others joining. And he finally rises with this triumph in his voice. And he holds up his scepter. And he shouts. And that shout reverberates throughout heaven. And he says, so let it be. And it happens. Why? Because in God's set purpose, he instituted this concept called prayer. In which we get to participate in this phenomenal plan of God. That we don't understand how he's going to he asks, when the Son of Man returns on earth, will he find faith? That was in the context of a parable about prayer. Church, is that what he's going to find if he comes back? Is, is he going to find faith in your heart? Is he going to see you as a prayer warrior speeding the coming of the day of God? Can you stand with me? You've probably guessed that this is something that's passionate in my heart. And as a pastor, I pray for and I look forward to that day. 
in which Jesus comes back and the seventh trumpet is blown and the mystery of God is accomplished and all nations believe and obey. I want to be a part of that. I want, to be a, I want that to be the substance of what we talk about forever and ever in heaven. Did you see what God did in this person's life? And all I did was I just, I prayed and I said like two words. And God rescued him. I couldn't believe it. It was a total God thing. God, would you please speak to every heart here this morning and call us to prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven forgive their sin and I will heal their land. God, we are a lost people in this nation in desperate need of your healing. Would you come? Would you heal? We are filled with wickedness in the very core of our being and as a nation we have lost our way. Some call us a post-Christian nation. God, please, awaken your bride. Call us to battle on our knees. And from that posture, may we move forward to see your kingdom come here on earth just as it is in heaven. That is my heart's cry, God. Use these people here. Use each of us, God, to see that day come as we press in to know you and beseech you before your throne of grace. God, rescue the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out this week with the triumphant gospel. Pray on your knees. Move forward. Let God use you. God bless you. We look forward to seeing you this Wednesday.